say after me, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Have you heard that before? Do you believe that? Do you live that? Now let's do it this way. I'll say part of it and then you say the next phrase. Thy kingdom come on earth. Let's try that again. So here's how it kind of will go. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done is what you'll say on earth and you'll say as it is in heaven. All right, let's try that. Thy kingdom come thy on earth as it is in heaven. Very good. That little statement, I think, encompasses what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. And if you're joining us online, we're kicking off a a new series. It's called Thy Kingdom Come. And as Dan was saying, we're approaching, or actually we're in the after Christmas, before Easter doldrums. Where depression and gray days and tough days kind of reign. And so... As we gather and as I preach, this is one of the, probably the main teaching, preaching time where we get the most consistency between now and Easter with the least disruption other than snow days. And now that we have technology, if it's hard to be snowed out because I'll be online and Dan will be online and we'll just be doing it. And if you're in your pajamas and you can't get out of bed, don't take a picture of of yourself because we don't want to see it. (laughs) But if you're not in the room, you're missing out because it's a really, truly great experience and it's an encouragement to gather and to encourage one another and help us go through this season of time together. But through this series, and and I want you to know that we're going to be looking at and answering the questions, what it is like to truly follow Jesus— And as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, I have put this off because I didn't want to go there for the last 12 years. Because like Romans, this is another intimidating to me passage, one of the most difficult passages to do honor to, to do respect to, because the master teacher teaches kingdom values. And at the same time, we're going through a a season that is so difficult. And when we raise the bar, when he raises the bar, and this is like his inaugural teaching to all that he would do and say, and he lived it out perfectly. And guess what? We won't. No matter how hard we try, we will never, ever be able to live this out. He sets the bar so high. I don't want to discourage you. And at the same time, I want to challenge you because we can only live it one way. And I'll talk about that later on this message. But this also answers the question, what does it take to have a passionate, fulfilled life? What does it take? And it also answers the question, how do I be fully human? To be all that God created us to be. Eugene Peterson says it this way, and I like this quote. He says, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us how to live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrines and say, 
think like this and, and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human. And in, in the God-made, God-ruled world, this is what is involved in becoming and in maturing as a human being. So now, if you're not in Christ and you are investigating Christianity, this is going to be a real challenge to you because this is otherworldly and outside of your experience and understanding. I just want to tell you that in, in advance. And if you are in Christ and you are living by the Spirit, this will challenge you to the very nth degree to live according to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So as we look at Scripture today, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, and the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. Not to be confused with the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke 16. Did you know there was a Sermon on the Plain as well in Scripture? I didn't know that. All the years I've studied. And this mount that we're talking about is undescript in probably a foothills to the mountains around the Sea of Galilee. But let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, and this is the way rabbis taught, they sat down when they taught, he, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, this is what he taught them. Now, the term disciple is very familiar for us, for most Christians who've been around it. But if you're new to Christianity, it, it means to be a student, to be a learner, to be an apprentice, to imitate the teacher. And it also means to adhere, like to adhere to someone like glue. And these disciples we're going to stick to him like glue. And is, if you read through the Gospels, you're going to see how that transformation occurred in their lives. Now, the scripture we're going to look at, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is called the Beatitudes. And in the Latin, it means blessed are or happy are. But I like this term, to be deeply satisfied and to be fulfilled. Isn't that what we're searching for in this life? And what we see our friends, family, and neighbors doing is trying to find a way to fulfill themselves. And even in Christmas, it may be materialism. It may be, it may be sex, money, or power, or a combination of all those things. And it never quite fulfills them deeply and, and satisfies them. And Jesus is going to teach us a way that we can be deeply satisfied and content without all of that. I want you to look and pick someone and say to them this. Blessed are you in this new year. Now, if you're online or, or present in this room, I also want you to to pick the other person that you did not pick and bless them as well with blessed are you in this new year. You bless the same person, Dwight. You bless the same person twice. Exactly. 
Now, do you feel blessed? I want you to think about this. Jesus, as he inaugurates the kingdom of God, he does it in the previous chapter. You may not even have to turn the page to verse, chapter 4, verse 17. And here he says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe it or not, you are living in the kingdom. You, if you are in Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, confess him the Lord and Savior of your life, baptize into him, you are a royal subject of the kingdom of God. And it is present now. Jesus convened it 2,000 years ago. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has come, and we are living in it. And he's going to give us the values and the principles of the kingdom of God that are unattainable. And I'll explain why in a minute. But look at, we're going to read through them all and just get a big picture. And in fact, I'm just going to touch on them superficially today. I I don't have the time, nor am I going to spend a series. I could preach a series on each beatitude and not do them justice. Just so you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when we read that and we peruse that at a high altitude, we've got to realize some things. First of all, that this is unnatural. This is not our nature. In fact, this is countercultural. It's against everything in our society, in our culture, worldly speaking. It is counterintuitive. It goes against our intuition. We will not naturally do this, in other words. In fact, this is supernatural. Jesus is starting with something that's so otherworldly. But, but, but we have read it, we have heard it, that we know it, that we have to rehear it. And look at it from a different perspective with different eyes to understand it. And the only way we can live this out is through the Holy Spirit of God and, 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 and knowing that we fall short all the time. And so if that depresses you, let me continue. And at the same time, I want to encourage you that that is where we need to be. And finally, third, this is sequential. As we look at this passage of Scripture and the following passage of Scripture, Jesus has a a rhyme and a reason, an order to this, and it builds upon each, each step, each principle builds upon the other principle as we live life in the kingdom as his royal subjects. So hear this in Matthew 5, 3, the first Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, when you think about a kingdom, you've got to ask the question, who does the kingdom typically come to? Where does power typically go? It goes to the rich, it goes to the famous, it goes to the elite. But not in Jesus' kingdom, not in the kingdom of God. It goes to the poor and the needy because they are so desperate for God. See, poor in this passage is the strongest use of the word poor Spiritually speaking, it is begging for God's presence, for his existence in our lives. And that is the building block, the foundation of the Beatitudes, is our wanton need for God, that we are so desperate for him. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we go from poor to mourn. And most of the time, if we're really, really honest, if you're anything like me, we avoid mourning at all costs because it's depressive, it, it is anxiety building, it is sad, and it is lonely. But in the kingdom, we are called to mourn our spiritual deficit, our need for God how desperate we are. It's sort of like the people that you see begging out on the street if they were truly, truly poor and destitute without anything needing whatever you could give them. Isaiah says says it this way in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He says, and this is a description of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, they didn't recognize who he was. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The psalm writer says it this way, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We are in need of God. We mourn our own godlessness and brokenness is what Jesus is calling us to. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, for some of you, if you're looking in your translation, maybe what you normally read or study, it might say humble. But, but the idea of humble and lowly doesn't really quite capture the meaning of this word because meek actually means a gentleness of strength or humility. If you know anything about racehorses, I have a friend that's an expert in racehorses, that race, this, you would describe a racehorse as a meek animal, which would be strength under control, focused on the, the end of uh, the race, that kind of meekness, because they will inherit the earth. Now, you might ask the question, well, how would the meek or the humble inherit the earth? Because they get stepped on, they get overlooked, they don't get heard. Well, we're looking at eternal values and understanding that the meek, the strong, 
those that are differentiated from the world and, and its preoccupations are the ones that actually inherit the kingdom of God and, and dwell in, in heaven. That's what they will receive, the new heaven and the new earth. Then Jesus goes and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The only way I can explain this is that they are so hungry for righteousness, for justice, to do what is right, to do what is just, that they crave, they ache for it. Now, if you remember, Jesus with the woman at the well, with the Samaritan woman, he chose to pass through Samaria, and he shows up at this well about midday, maybe late morning, early afternoon, when nobody should have been at the well, and this woman of disrepute is drawing water at the well. And he says to her, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you could draw living water, and you would never have to come to the well again. Now, she was looking at it from a physical perspective. Hey, if I don't have to carry, fetch water back and forth from my household, and I could just have water once and never have to go get it again, that would be awesome. Now, we take that for granted. We call that a modern convenience. We all have running water in our house, but she didn't. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about spiritually having living water. And she thirsted for that whole idea. And he gave it to her, and it changed her life. That is the kind of thirst, that is the kind of hunger that we need to have for doing what is right. And we can only do that by the Spirit of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, we like compassion, don't we? We all like to receive mercy. Sometimes it's harder to give mercy. It's, it's harder when somebody sins against you and you think it was purposeful and vengeful for you to forgive them. It doesn't mean that you're allowing them to do it again. But it's hard to have compassion in that moment. Compassion is the place where we not only see a need, but we feel convicted and we are brought to a place of action. And as I taught about the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago, remember the priest and Levite passed by. They diverted their eyes and they didn't see the man that had been beaten up by the robbers and robbed. But the Samaritan saw the person. He didn't just feel compassion. He didn't just see the person, but he went on to meet that need and to help him. Now we see this kind of compassion with Jesus on the cross. Remember he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Have you ever had anybody sin against you, hurt you, intentionally or non-intentionally, and they didn't know what they were doing? They didn't speak in, with that intention, or maybe they did, and still they did not know what they were doing. And you had to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. 
That is the type of compassion we're talking about. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, the kingdom is a heartfelt kingdom. And when we look at the heart, we are talking about the desires and the motives and the emotions and the intent of the heart. And when we look at the heart, what does Jesus say about the heart in Matthew 15? He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Now that's kind of scary, isn't it? Especially in our worst moments, our painful moments. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's not what we eat physically, but what we harbor in our heart and what comes out of our mouths. And we live in a profane culture, and, and we see and hear so much on media and social media and all types of things that we become acclimated to it, we become used to it. But that's not what Jesus says. It's, it penetrates our heart. It, it changes us, and we need to be transformed by him. Jeremiah said it this way in Jeremiah 24, 7. He says, I will give them a heart to, to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. We're called to be pure in heart, but it requires our whole heart. Jeremiah again says in 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your heart. The only way to have a pure heart is to seek the Lord with all our hearts. Paul writes Timothy and he encourages them with these words. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's over and over in scripture again to pursue God with a pure heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't know a time in our history where we are more divided and we need to be more unified. And it takes peacemakers to do that. Thomas Merton said it this way, We are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. Billy Graham wrote a book called Peace with God. That our peace starts here with him and it can be translated and transformed into our other relationships. Don't we need that now? And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I know some people that have a persecution complex. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious or being right all the time where people want to persecute you. I'm actually talking about living the kingdom values and because you're living in Christ, not an obnoxious individual, not, not making everybody mad at you, 
but you're actually living the values, then persecution comes because persecution is coming. Within this last century, Christians all over the world have been persecuted more than they ever had before. I don't want to discourage you, but persecution is coming. If you live these values, you will be persecuted. But at the same time, you're going to find a satisfying and fulfilling life. You might say, well, Chris, I'm not, I'm not the type of person that I go out looking for persecution. And I, I would say that's a very healthy way to live life. But at the same time, when we're living the values of the kingdom, other people aren't going to get it. But in that moment, we have the opportunity to reflect Christ and perhaps people will be drawn to him because he is the champion of our faith, isn't he? And that's who we want to be discipled by. That's who we want to imitate. That's who we want to reign Want, he is the king of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The Hebrew writer writes it this way. He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, re- disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We need to fix our eyes on our King, Jesus, and adhere to Him. Realizing our impoverishment, our mourning, our desperate hunger and thirst for righteousness that only He can fulfill by His Spirit through His grace, clinging to His Word. Thy kingdom come on earth will you please stand and pray with me eternal God and Father we pray thy kingdom come that would live and reign in us that Father we would bow before King Jesus and know him as Lord and Savior and Father these values are impossible for us to live on our own Father, we just pray that your filling, your indwelling of your spirit would uh, change us from the inside out. That the work that you need to do to your royal subjects that you would do. And Father, for those that are just struggling with the whole concept of king and kingdom, who are struggling with the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Father know in their heart and can hear, can hear and feel your presence. Father, I just pray they would submit to you, that they would hear Jesus' voice that calls them to follow him and to make him king and savior of their lives. Father, we just pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Will you come this morning?